Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. <laughs> Why are you doing weird things? Because you're doing weird things. <laughs> you started it. No, you started it. You were it. weird first. You were the first one who talked on okay. the show. If you're just joining us, this is a very sophisticated podcast. We don't normally act like this. this no, is it's usually weird, much worse. It's much worse. It's much worse. Listen, we got a lot to talk about. No, we, we don't. I say that every week. We don't. We don't. We don't have a lot to talk. We do have a lot to talk about. It's the second half of a true crime pair. It's it, right. It's um, it's uh, volume four of the Southern Sands Summer Film Festival entry. No. In the- <laughs> you got it all wrong. You just got it all wrong. Stop numbering things. We're bad at math here. We don't. We can't do this. No numbers. It is the let's say this is the end of the Southern Sins segment of the True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival. Right? Wow, that was very impressive. Yeah, I'm good. And what it means is that we've done a pairing last week. Yes. If you listened to the last episode, I don't know if you listened to it last week or this week or 20 years in the <laughs> last future. year. I don't know, but the last episode that we recorded was about the documentary about the West Memphis Three. Uh, yes, and there are a lot of documentaries, but there was one on Discovery ID that is almost, it's a great summation of where the case is today. It's very current. There, there are multiple HBO documentaries. That's what made this case world famous. But the one we talked about really was a survey of everything. We were and it, just looking to kind of recap all of the facts. And one of the participants yeah. in it was a woman named Mara Leverett. <laughs> Which we're happy to be able to remember this week. Yeah. And she wrote a book called Devil's Knot, which yes. was later made into a movie starring Colin Firth and Reese Witherspoon. And that's our pairing. So that's we have our the pairing. documentary, a previous ex- uh, episode, and this episode will be a fictional coverage of the same crime that we talked about last week in a documentary sense. So, because I love rules and structure in a format, 
I'm going to ask Eric the same question I have been asking him every time we do these types of pairings, and I'll answer it myself if I ever get around to saying anything. Um, was that a remark? <laughs> I, just, I believe that was a remark about how much I've had to say. <laughs> you were looking away, and I wanted to get your attention back. It was well, work. it apparently worked. <laughs> it looked, those, I'm laser-focused now. Those eyes got big and wide and slid to me. Um, when you came out of the documentary last week, what were you most curious about the movie? What, what did you want to see the movie address? Or what were you curious about what the movie would be able to address? What were you Well, thinking? I think we talked about it last week about, oh, my God, how will they fit all of this into one movie? Because it's a lot of story. It is a big story. It spans really nearly 20 years from the, yes. the commission of the crime to the boys getting out of prison. It spans about... 20 years. And so that's a lot to fit in um, a two hour format. And then there were trials and appeals and the murder itself and the investigation and all of those things. I was interested in getting um, more insight into um, the investigation and the defense of the initial of the initial crime of the things that came out of because you remember we were talking about like I didn't feel like looking at the documentary that any defense had really been presented. There was no discussion of alibis or mm-hmm. anything that would mitigate or answer the um, the assertions of the other side. The other side, frankly, didn't make any relevant assertions. But by presenting an alibi saying, these are the 10 witnesses who can say my client was, you know, a thousand miles away, that's the end of the conversation. So where was that? Before we get into that, and, and for the people who don't want to, I know I asked you that question, but it just occurred to me. Before we, ask, <laughs> before we talk about the thing that you ju- I just asked you to say. But if you don't feel like going back and listening to the episode last week, and if you're unfamiliar with the Devil's Knot story. You? It was amazing. It, We're fabulous, you know. Well, I think once they enjoy this one, maybe they'll go back. But it's a little early in the episode yet to have sold them on it. Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly were falsely accused of murdering three eight, eight, and nine-year-old boys in a small town in Arkansas called West Memphis. The murders were gruesome. They had some aspects to the preparation of the bodies that seemed ritualistic if you were a religious It was very bigot. ritualistic, even if you're not. It was yeah. a very ritual-looking crime scene. Really bizarre. They were strangely bound. They were hogtied with their own shoelaces, stripped naked, hogtied with their own shoelaces, the genitals of one of the boys was mutilated. Their clothes were staked out to the bottom of a creek. Right. Their bodies were buried under the mud at the bottom of a creek. Right. It was a really weird body discovery crime. Horrifyingly scene. weird. Yes. Um, the trial was a miscarriage of justice. The satanic panic was essentially the central plank of the prosecution. So ridiculous religious bozos got up and said nonsense stuff about people listening to hard rock music being a pathway to demon worship for heaven's sakes. Um, The boys were later exonerated on the basis of multiple DNA tests when technology improved. They have since been let out of prison on the basis of something called an Alford plea, which is when you don't, you, you admit guilt but you are released from prison, so your conviction still stands. This is something we have seen other people in a similar situation refuse to do, but in this case, Damien Eccles was facing the death penalty, and so his friends went along and admitted, falsely admitted guilt. 
to save their friend's life. And they felt bad about it because it was lying. There were multiple HBO documentaries about this case that really made it world famous. Paradise Lost was the first one. West of Memphis was the final one. I can't remember the name of the one in between. They were done over a period of years. And that's why, and eventually, this movie was made in 2014 starring Reese Witherspoon and Colin Firth. Okay, so those are the facts. Um, Did you get all those things addressed? Did you get a better sense of how the investigation went also, and also, what was the structure of the defense of these boys at trial? Um, I did not because I, this movie was oddly not about yeah. that that crime. It had almost it was about two characters who really aren't involved and weren't accused Drove and didn't go to crazy. It was about yeah. the mother of one of the boys and a private investigator who I guess was part of the other thing, Just, but I didn't have any ooh, recollection of it. Was he? So yes. it was like. Um, what are you talking about? Why are we not talking about, like, we really did not, the the crime and the people being accused of it was, seemed almost incidental. It was. This movie, uh, I, I my question last week was, this is a huge story. How are they going to get it in two hours? And the answer is they didn't and they couldn't. And I think you pinpointed the reason for it right there. They picked two points of view that I guess they were easy to get movie stars to play which was a mother, you know, a, a grieving mother, a, a, a mother who ultimately does not believe her child's killer has been found, spoiler alert, and this but private detective initially. and this private detective who is like a character out of a Grisham novel that I'm not invested in, whose life is not on the line, whose divorce is not interesting to me. Because I we just, don't know anything about him yeah. or it, and nothing is revealed to us during the course of the movie. And this is a hugely consequential case, and as you said, their lives on the line, and we're in a diner with Colin Firth hashing out stuff with his ex-wife. I was just, none of this worked. This was so not the movie I would have told about this case. And I hate that I'm sounding, this is sounding like a refrain with me, but... But this is the rare instance where I will say, and I think too much has been made into a limited series that doesn't have enough legs, this should have been a limited series. You could have added these characters to the mix of an ensemble sure. if you were giving greater and equal time to all these different points of view. But the character whose life is on the line, Damien Eccles, we barely get any of him, you know, and we don't go into the guts of the trial, as you wanted the movie to do. Or the crime, or the yeah. investigation of it. The only thing they really seem to focus on was the at least incompetent, if not overtly corrupt, nature of the investigation itself. That's really all they touched on. And then it was about, and that was really more about how it affected Colin Firth than it was about how it affected the people who were being charged with the crime and ultimately falsely imprisoned and persecuted and mistreated and beaten and raped and whatever else happened to them in prison because they were child murderers. Um, and that isn't wasn't really relevant. So I didn't actually discover anything from watching this film. There was nothing. There was no new information. It didn't expand on the story that I watched it because it was not about that story. It was about these two other characters. So it's we're going to end early. <laughs> I mean, really. But there's one. I was going to say there's one. Aspect where I felt like I got more e- okay. information. Before, yes. yes. Paradise Lost 3 was called Purgatory. Purgatory. Okay. But so wait, how many? There was Paradise Lost. The Paradise second one Lost, was called. There was Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hill. Huh, Robin, Robin Hood, Hood Hills. Hills. Yeah. Paradise Lost 2, which was in 2000, was called Revelations. Revelations. Okay. And Paradise Lost 3, which was in 2011, was called Purgatory. Purgatory. 
And then there was Blast of Memphis. So there were four documentaries that HBO did. Maybe so. I think there were four, because I remember one of them was called West of Memphis. Let's um, see. While you look into that, I will say there was one area where I felt like we got information, more information than was in the documentary, and that was in the informant who popped up in the neighboring community with an eight-year-old son who just happened to have been best friends with the murder victims and told an elaborate story about Damien Eccles and the satanic murder and all this sort of stuff, a story that confirmed all of the suspicions the police already had. There are more details given about how much trouble she was in with the local police, that she was under pressure to be an informant in this case, that they had gotten her on a credit card fraud scheme. She'd been running with some friends out of a nearby truck stop. And again, because this was from a book that was factually based on the crime, right. I assume those were confirmations of suppositions we had yeah. when we were watching the, the other. Because I don't know that they made it clear that she was that they had her on credit card fraud and she was trying to make nice with them in the documentary yeah. itself. I don't know that they, they may have, but I don't remember that particularly, but it was very much a part of this movie. Yeah, very much. West of Memphis was the total name. It wasn't Paradise Lost. Oh. It was just called West of Memphis and it came out in 2012. Okay. And it stars Jason and Damien. Okay. That's how it's listed. So right. it's much more about them and their acquittal. Mm-hmm. Well... They're Alford, Ish, they're plea, Alford plea, which is Alford not plea. an acquittal, as we talked about. Yeah. It's an admission of guilt, which is but really you, weird, but it shuts down the investigation. And so this was about the frustration of the people trying to participate in the investigation and the, the motivations for the people who were trying to help those boys. But it was really about how the private investigator was the real crusader. And even the lawyers defending the boys, and I have to say because I still haven't had any information that they put on any sort of defense, um, they, he may have been. Like, they, there doesn't, I am not overly impressed with the lawyer, with Jason and Damien's lawyers. The guy who was the representative for the, the, the other kid, mm -hmm. I actually was pretty impressed with him. He was a part of the documentary and, he really stepped up. He's the one Dan who started Steedham, this. Dan yes. who is Jesse Miss Kelly's yeah. attorney. He so, really started this whole, like, pushback on, no, this is not a confession, and no, you have no basis for a trial. And he really pushed this into, I think, what it ultimately became. And and to give the structure of the case, right, is the, so the local police really want to get this guy, Damien Eccles, for this because he's weird and he listens to metal and all this sort of stuff, and they think he's a Satanist. He's got an expressed interest Paints in the occult. fingernails black. So they find, based on the testimony of this informant who's in trouble with the neighboring police department, she claims that she, this guy who does yard work and babysitting for her, was probably involved. His name's Jesse Miss Kelly. He's mentally handicapped. He has, the they say, the reasoning ability of a fourth grader. He's a 17-year-old. Yeah. The cops bring him in. They heavily coach him. He initially gives them a confession, the facts of which don't line up with the facts of the case. He's they saying things. They don't even things, line up with the facts in the confession. He's it's saying, yeah. from the, beginning to end. He says the murders happened in daylight, and they say, no, they didn't. The boy, the, they, Oh, the boys skipped school. They said, no, they didn't skip school. The, they know the murders happened at night because they went missing at night. They were last seen around 430. So that's his defense attorney. The guy's a, the guy who gets assigned to that right. poor man is the one that you're talking right. about. Who Stead first? Him. Yeah, he was he was the one, the only defense attorney that I was particularly impressed with, 
But it may have been because I didn't see the defense that the other ones put on. And I did get to he did the interviews and I did get to see more of what he did. So I don't know that the other two didn't do a good job, but it didn't look like it. No, Um, I didn't see evidence of an actual case being put on to prove that I think partly because. They just thought, well, this is so ridiculous and there's absolutely no proof. All we have to do is say this is ridiculous and there's no proof and that'll be the end of it. And they convicted those boys because they were weird or because Damien was. true, but I'm also starting to think that, like, they didn't have a compelling alibi. I don't think that's evidence of guilt, but— They have to have been somewhere. Right. But I was at home watching TV with Jason is not a good good enough alibi to put on the stand. It's better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah, like, I, I never heard an alibi for either of these boys. Yeah. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. So what are we going to talk about? We did <laughs> the movie didn't work. I, I, listen, this is my experience of watching the movie. If I hadn't just watched the documentary, I would have been overwhelmed and confused. I wouldn't have been able to place who the individual peoples were. The lawyers are never properly presented in any kind of uh, substantive way inside the movie itself. So I had to piece them together based on what I knew about them from the documentary, who was representing who. Because there are two different trials that happen close together. Jesse Miss Kelly, who re- recants his confession, is is tried in one trial, and then Damien and Jason are tried together in a separate trial. And these trials are sort of crossover and edged. I just everything about this needed to be threaded out and given a bigger canvas to play on, and I and I would have focused in on away from these two characters that I just well, wasn't. Well, I don't mind in. that the two characters were in there, but th- I didn't see them as the the heart of this particular story. No. Um, it was the heart of this movie, and I don't know, maybe it was the heart of the novel or the the book, right? Which it was nonfiction, so I don't think it was a novel, um, but I. I don't think so. I think that that must have been about the actual case. It was an odd choice. It was a very odd choice. That said, um, the Reese Witherspoon character offered some insight into not only the 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 journey of that particular character, that right. woman, that mother, but also of that community. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that, that did happen in the last... The documentary mm-hmm. uh, version was there was a point at the beginning where the community wanted blood. They believed yeah. those boys were guilty and they wanted blood. The minister, they showed that crackpot 
minister standing up to the God, you know, saying that it was that music was the gateway to mm-hmm. rock music was the gateway to Satanism and evil and everything else, like just preposterous crap. Right. And the community was buying it. Mm-hmm. And one of the fathers, the one, the the drug addict, I can't remember, is it Lyle? John Mark Byers. Byers. Yeah. Um, was all in for if they killed my boys, then I want justice. I want them killed. I mm-hmm. want them put to... He, at the the later trial, was saying to the press without mm-hmm. any... Strongly and without any equivocation, I want these boys out because they had nothing to do with mm-hmm. the murder of my child, and I right. want to know who did it. And he actually thought by that point, that it was one of the other fathers. Who, who is the husband of the Reese Witherspoon character in this movie. Right. Yeah. I don't think it was Terry Hobbs. Hobbs. Yeah. Um, I don't think it. I don't think he was, but there was actually more evidence that he was the murderer than there was any of those three boys. Mm-hmm. So it was not an unreasonable yeah. supposition, but that was the journey that everybody went through. And Reese Witherspoon's character, that mother, goes through that journey in the course of this process. She sees, she witnesses, we watch her witness the trial and the miscarriage of justice, and her doubts begin to grow over time. She did, in real life, ultimately harbor some doubts about her own spouse. Mm-hmm. She It broke up their marriage. She left him. It was... It was a change of venue for her. She right. really found, she found, she stopped believing that those boys were guilty and started wanting, as I still want, to find out who killed those poor children. Mm-hmm. The other thing I will say as a side note, mm-hmm. the effect that they came up with when they pulled those boys out of oh that water, God. that was wrenching. They, I assume it was latex. Yeah representations because you meet the little boys in the movie right as little boys and then you see the hogtied naked bodies being pulled up out yes. of the mud at the bottom of the creek which must have been a dummy obviously I, I hope so God I hope so um and it was horrific the the actor doing the work being yeah. the police officer doing it who ultimately was kind of a repellent character in the mm-hmm. story but that moment of the the emotional impact of that moment mm-hmm. and his response to it was actually pretty powerful. Yeah. It was terrifying, unsettling, and then really powerful all at the same time. That's just sort of a weird side note. It was the only part of it that was really well. Like, it is you can see them I having imagined it, but to actually see it happen. Uh, and was, I, I oh you God. sit there wondering, okay, this is a very serious movie about a very horrible crime. Do you show these images? Does that bring home the crime or does that somehow exploit the crime? And not only did they do that, but they show what has got to be a recreation of the crime scene photos of the facial injuries, yeah. to one of which are described in terrible detail in the documentary we talked about. And I, it was really horrifying. And in, it was horrifying. in both the documentary and in the movie, right. it, is the, the, it, is, it is her son's face and it sends both the real character and the actual the character yeah. she was playing running from the courtroom because it was such a horrific yeah. thing to have to see. Those things for me really drove it home. They did not yeah. seem exploitative. They seemed to really underscore the power. There was a lot of other stuff they could have dwelt on and they didn't. This was just enough to give you the sense of how horrific this was for 
the parents and for the community at large. Everybody had children and nobody knew and people wanted to feel safe. And I think part of wanting those boys to be guilty was wanting to feel safe again. There is a, a throwaway line in the documentary that has never picked up again and that is addressed nowhere in the movie, which is that the hog tying of the corpses, people immediately run with this sort of ritualistic satanic theory. It is the same thing that was done to POWs. It's a combat thing. And I, I never hear that discussed again as a possible lens at looking at suspects or... I don't yes. know. You it know. isn't technically hog tying because yeah. that's about tying the feet together. This is about tying the arms to the legs so yeah. that the body is sort of hunched over, but you can't really run or use your hands in any effective way to defend yourself. You're you're literally folded over yeah. by the force of, of the tying and, and much more physically vulnerable. What is the movie you would have done? If you had only two hours, let's say you don't have a limited series, what is the movie you would have done of this case? I think I would have begun with the final, um, the, the, the I, I always get, keep, it always throws me off because it's not an acquittal, mm -hmm. but the final moments of those boys being in prison, the right. offer being made, the, the progress being made that they get to the offered plea offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then stepped back as we needed to right. to reveal the parts of the story to see how we got there because mm -hmm. that's ultimately... And I would have focused more on the reality of what they suffered as yeah. a result of this injustice because the other thing that's possible, I said last week and I still believe, the story that I'm still taken with and all of this is that if not all of the police, somebody in authority knows who committed these crimes because the every effort that has been made on the, on the investigation of these crimes has been to shut down the investigation, including the Alford plea. Mm -hmm. All of those things are about not investigating. So I think they know who did it. Mm. I do. But the other thing that is also a possibility with the Alford plea and a reason that it gets offered, I think, is because it precludes them seeking damages for having been falsely imprisoned mm. and for their for what happened to them in prison, which God knows with those little boys, a 16-year-old mm. child was put in. He talked about it to the extent that he could, the actual um, – Jason, mm -hmm. um, the actual um, young man in prison, talked about having his teeth knocked out and his nose broken. And I can only imagine that was just the beginning God. of the physical horrors that he was subjected to as being seen as a child rapist and murderer mm -hmm. in prison. Frequently, it's a death sentence. And mm -hmm. if it wasn't, it probably was worse. Yeah. Um, and so I would have focused on the things that those boys went through as a result of being imprisoned for a crime that they didn't go through as we recount the delays and the bureaucratic bullshit that kept them in prison for 18 years of their young lives um, for crimes that they didn't commit. Mm -hmm. There isn't any proof. There isn't any investigation. So there's really nothing to cover there. Mm -hmm. The trial was preposterous and ridiculous, and I think you could have done the highlights reel of the mm -hmm. trial, but I wouldn't have dragged through it. And in terms of those two characters, I wouldn't have included the Colin Firth character at, at all. all. Not at There's all. just nothing about that character that adds anything to this story. Mm -mm. And 
hers, I would I would have cast the other moms and the other parents and sprinkled them throughout sure. for texture and context. And I liked the idea of them becoming convinced mm-hmm. that in fact those boys were were guilty when they were willing to say that they were they thought they weren't that they thought they were guilty mm-hmm. um, based on the same spurious nonsense. Right. Yeah. I, that's how I felt about the movie. I felt the movie um, ended when it needed to be beginning, which is it ends with a scene of the Colin Firth character going out and finding the Reese Witherspoon character, Pam Hobbs, close to the murder scene, staring at the river and saying, basically says, what do you believe? And she says, I have doubts. You know, I have doubts. And it's the beginning of those doubts that is the movie to me. Right. As opposed to the rehash of all the stuff. You know, because I have to say, I saw one negative review of the of the movie that just said it doesn't add anything new to this story, and it really doesn't. We've seen if you've watched any of the documentaries at all, you know all of these details. You're just seeing them performed with Hollywood actors now, so and I, I don't think that's enough of a reason to. And do a hardly movie. even that, because yeah. it's really about, you know, uh, her continuing to be upset that her son is dead, which was tragic, but like the scenes in the house and oh talking with the police, so and many dream sequences, the husbands, and, just and just thought, there was yeah. a lot of and. All of the Colin Firth stuff was just completely I just, irrelevant. I just, I mean, and he, I love Colin but Firth. But his journey uh, from from believing, because he believes in the guilt of the boys, he just initially, his character expresses a contempt for the death penalty. And so he gets involved as a sort of devil's advocate in any death penalty case. And then he does three interviews and suddenly believes the boys are innocent. And it's like, this is a bigger journey I needed to see this character make if you're really going to stake this out for well, him. Well, I will say it was yeah. so... It was so subtle that I never really even noticed yeah, it. Yeah, because it's a, it, it's a shame because I think there is a story here. But I think if you're going to do a movie, you you I like the ones where you really stake out maybe one or two points of view and commit fully because you re, you recognize you're you're not going to have ten hours to flesh this all out. And I think a movie like this where it has to end with maybe I don't know seven title cards on the screen telling you what happened next at minimum that's a sign you have a script that's in trouble. Right. If There's you have to do that there. much explaining with title cards on the end of the screen, and yeah. that's why I'm saying yeah. I would have picked Damien and Jason as yeah. the, as the the principals in this movie and. Everybody else would have been background. Yeah, yeah. As their stories unfold, and as we arrive at their moment of acquittal and innocence, it's not really acquittal, but I, I can't really get to another place. Well, as saving his life is really, he was avoiding the death penalty for something he didn't do. And nobody who was there or a part of this believes that they're guilty. It is only a legal technicality. Yeah. That prevents investigation. That causes and maybe lawsuits. Yeah. That that causes the, it to be anything other because nobody thinks they're guilty because yeah. they're not it's just it, it's um, oh, oh i'm sorry except for dale jeffries jeffries griffiths griffiths yeah. the big fat idiot who if you know him please you know kick him in the shin and uh <laughs> if, if he walks in front of your car don't slow down mm. what a moron mm. he was an occult expert putting in quotes who says that the boys should be convicted on the basis of the fact that Damien should have earned, uh, owned more than black T-shirts in his wardrobe. That that was a sign that he had murdered three eight-year-old boys in and listened to rock blood. music and oh, just, such as that. I can't. Um, just so ridiculous. let's talk about our favorite topic, which is what this case stirs up, which is the satanic panic. There's nothing sets us off like the satanic panic here at TDPS. Well, it is such. I mean, the thing that really makes it such a hot-button issue for me is that this is an actual, for all of the, 
yelling and screaming. We hear about it with, you know, web designers hypothetically having to design uh, wedding invitations for gay people. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not actually religious persecution. This is religious persecution. This is using Christianity to prosecute people in a court of law and sending them to prison with no other evidence other than your ridiculous religious beliefs. I believe that anybody who wants to pursue this nonsense should first have to prove the existence of the devil. Mm -hmm. And if you can prove that, then we'll talk about satanic panic. But otherwise, it's nonsense. Yeah. I also want to emphasize for our younger listeners, our party people who maybe weren't around at the time, how fucking prevalent this thinking was. It may be easy to look at this story and say, oh, well, this was mess- This was some little old town in Arkansas. Oprah played host to this kind of shit back in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Oprah Winfrey, and it may not be popular to talk about it. Oprah Winfrey interviewed a young boy on her show who claimed that he had witnessed Satanists put a baby in an oven and swing skeletons on chains over their heads. And she turned to the camera and said, and I remember because my mother lost her shit, we don't want to believe this type of thing is true, but it's really happening out there. This was mainstream. The satanic panic had gone mainstream, and it was a long time before people took stock of how many lives it had ruined. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So I think the thing that is the unspoken aspect of, I don't know, maybe it's not unspoken. Maybe I'm the last one at the at the parade on this particular one. But it seems to me that satanic panic corresponds kind of suspiciously with the rise of religious fundamentalism mm-hmm. as a oh, absolutely. as a political force in our culture. It is it is really the rise of religious persecution of people from various religions that don't happen to match the evangelical one. Mm-hmm. But it is a use of religion as a means of persecuting the beliefs of others and the substitution of just like Sharia law, 
Mm -hmm. Everybody was remember when everybody was worried that Sharia law was going to become a problem in this country. This is the same thing. This is the use of Christian fundamentalism as a as a legal precedent and as a, a reason to make laws in this country. The the just say gay thing. Those things are about people's religious beliefs. The mm-hmm. the anti-abortion thing mm-hmm. are about people's religious beliefs. Oh, that's beliefs. absolutely what like, it's about. If yeah. you don't want to have an abortion, don't have one. No. But the belief that you should be able to tell somebody what to do is, in fact, religious persecution. Absolutely. It's absolutely based on a religious definition of the moment of conception itself, the moment life begins right. in accordance with religious dogma. With somebody yeah. else's. Somebody like, else's. And that's fine. You're allowed to believe it, but you're not allowed to tell somebody else what to believe. That's that's why we don't have a state religion in, this, in, in our culture. But more and more, we are behaving as though we do as a result of this actually probably small, fringy group of loudmouths who will not um, leave the stage or be put in their proper perspective. But something has happened recently which may actually help us with that. Oh, yes. What is that, Eric Jacquin? Well, apparently, according to the Supreme Court, if you don't believe what somebody else believes, then you can discriminate against them. Mm-hmm. You can eliminate them from your platform. You can not include their views. You can dismiss them. So I think mm-hmm. that now that we're at this place that you can, um, if you disagree with somebody else's beliefs, you can silence them or not allow them to uh to have their say in the yes. public place, I think it's time to shut these fuckers up. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's time to eliminate religious fundamentalism from the culture. I think it's time mm-hmm. to stop reporting on them on the news. I think it's time to stop including them in any sort of viable way mm-hmm. as a conversation about social issues to which we don't agree with what they believe in, and since we're allowed to discriminate against them, then we should. I think we should, and I think they've invited it because they have not tried to put themselves in opposition to a different religious belief. They have tried to put themselves in opposition to science, which is not a religion, and it is not a fair comparison, and they don't possess a body of evidence to prove that their belief system is of greater benefit to society. I think they are, I think evangelical Christians are a public health crisis, and I'm not afraid to say it. I think that sounds like a perfect way yeah. of describing it and why should we continue to believe like there are Christian scientists who don't believe in medicine at all which I think they're entitled to right I, I actually believe in that sort of radical constitution driven stuff but I don't think they should be in a position to prevent the rest of us from having medical absolutely care because they don't believe in it and I think the same is true of any other group that's mm-hmm. trying to put there so since we've been given this opportunity to silence other groups that we don't agree right. with I think we really should yeah absolutely so I won't be making any websites for them what are you not going to be doing uh, you know ever including them in any sort of meaningful way in any conversation or being fair about it because apparently we don't have to be fair about Mm -hmm. it. It can just be what I believe is, you know, tantamount to the end. But the other thing that I would like to start being doing is taking on those causes from this perspective. It's like our governor recently here in California, California. after they passed that ridiculous law in Texas that you could prosecute people Mm -hmm. for helping a woman have control over her own body. Right. Um, 
He said, okay, and they said it was all right, um, then fine, then we're going to start prosecuting gun manufacturers for, we're just going to pass a law that says we're going to prosecute gun manufacturers Mm -hmm. for facilitating the murder of other people with their unregulated and overpowerful weapons. Like, if we're going, if it's sauce for the goose, it's sauce for the gander. And Mm -hmm. I think this is the same level of so if that's the kind of law that we can make right we can say okay well you're actually advocating supremacy so you're no longer allowed to pick anything right we're going to start passing laws that are based on um eliminating those kinds of views from public if you express a belief that is in opposition to known science mm-hmm. and you cannot present science to support your evidence, then you may not bring lawsuit, you may not bring trial, mm-hmm. you may not come to any, you cannot participate in the legal process. This is no longer a valid argument. Mm-hmm. You can't say, I don't want to give out um, uh, what, uh, birth control, birth control right. at, my, um, at my craft store because it's not what I believe. Oh, I'm sorry. That's actually you substituting your mm-hmm. beliefs for somebody else's. So you're not allowed to do that. You can't bring this this lawsuit anymore because we no longer recognize your right, right. to have a platform to express your bigotry or your crazy um, fantasy based beliefs beliefs um, in order to control and monitor and legalize the other direction. I thought this could be taken in. The other direction I thought this could be taken in is starting because there is really no legal legal definition in this country of what a religion is, we can start to establish our own belief systems as religions, whether anybody else likes it or not. Like Absolutely. being queer can now be considered a religion. We have a certain set of beliefs about what we, we what our bodies are designed to do, which is to pursue personal fulfillment and pleasure where we feel pleasure is warranted. And we do not believe that you should be wedded to old, uh, ascientific ideas about the body that are potentially self-destructive and psychologically destructive. We can start to phrase and articulate all this as a set of religious beliefs beliefs and start to say that our religious freedom is being oppressed if you force me to live by your fundamentalist Christian views. And we could begin to use that as a defense against every legal advance that they've made. So this entire abortion nonsense that we're dealing with right now, I'm sorry, I believe that life begins with the first breath because prior to that, there is no life. I actually believe there is a sect of Judaism that believes, I actually, I think there is a sect of Judaism that believes just that and is possibly planning to pursue that argument in the court courts against this legislation. I think we absolutely should. I think we absolutely should. And I, the very least, I think this kind of persecution of people in the courtroom should just simply be illegal. I think you should not be able to present your religious beliefs in any way, shape or form in a court of law. But this is, you really nailed something about it earlier, and it wasn't one of your bigger points, meaning you just sort of said it in passing, but I think it is the crux of this whole thing. And it, it goes back to what you talked about, this need for simple answers that is driving so much of the country, but that definitely drove the community, I think understandably, because the community had been tra- uh, traumatized by these hideous murders in the beginning. I'm going to say a it, desire for simple A answers. desire for simple answers, right. The idea that membership in a group is more important from an evidentiary perspective than someone's actual, documented, verified behaviors, that is the mind rot that we cannot allow in our legal system. It is dangerous. The idea that the rule of law is going to be driven by an emotional reaction to somebody's group membership completely divorced 
from what we know about their behavior can't be it, it can't be the basis for a prosecution. It's just and and normally it's not. Like normally if you have, I'm sorry, a more enlightened community than this with law enforcement officers that act in a more professional manner about this around collecting evidence or whatever. But as you said again and again, they didn't have any evidence, so they had to go in this direction. But let's take the extreme example the way somebody would if they were arguing this on the Internet and say, if you were, the, if you were a member of a group that was called Bombs Blow Up Schools, that would be odious and repulsive. But if you had never done anything to make a bomb, to learn how to make a bomb, if you had never actually met with anyone who knew anything about making a bomb, if you had never visited a school or gone anywhere near a school, if you had nothing to do with schools, they would have a hard time prosecuting you for a crime for just saying you were a member of a group called Bombs Blow Up Schools. That's... Like, maybe they could get you on something. Maybe they could say the name of the group was considered a criminal threat. But those would be a much lesser charge than the charge of attempted terrorist act or behavior, whatever, you know. And group membership is not evidence of anything. And I think the same is true for— So, as in the way that these boys were considered guilty because yes, they were satanic right. or they whatever? Were, they, were, they were actually branded as being members of a group that they did not say they were members of, which was a satanic cult, right? He was saying, I have an interest in the paranormal, in a, in a branch of paranormal thinking and thought that is different from any religion you might be familiar with, which was Wicca in his case. Right. Uh, what he called white witchcraft. Right? right. Okay. That was it. And it believes all these sort of things. It does not believe what, what alleged Satanists believe. No, it has nothing it does, to do it, with right? Satan. Satan is a Christian belief. Um, so it's, it's a form of guilt by association, but it is association with a group that your opponent has defined for you. So it's different from the example that I just used. I used a more extreme sort of example. Sure. Who would push this as far as it could possibly go and still be within the letter of the law? Um, but the the thing that I hear again and again in these cases is there is not an effective, federalized, affordable system for processing forensic evidence in this country. And it is most apparent in small rural police departments that ultimately try to try cases on the on the basis of this kind of crap. That we saw here, right? Or and when the, somebody sang a song yeah. at their, <laughs> the, the, yeah, uh, the the uh, Earl's got to die. The right. woman who sang it at karaoke, karaoke and they said it was proof was, she'd killed her husband. That was right, one of the most ridiculous. But the in order to establish a standard of evidence in this country, people have to be able to participate in the testing of the evidence in a way that's effective. Um, presentable at trial. There is no, you know, we have a friend, she was on several episodes of The Dinner Party Show, our previous podcast, Jan Burke. Right. And she was a big proponent of this at a, at a certain point in her career. I don't know how much work she's able to do now, but she would say, people think we have this massive, standardized, federal forensic sciences program. We don't. We had no standards for who gets to be the local coroner. They don't have to be elected. They don't have to be a doctor. They don't have to be, you know, a have scientist, a, a have nurse, any information, a nursing nothing. degree, nothing. They can just be, you know, they read the books from the correspondence course, like the occult expert in this trial. Or they just got appointed or yeah. elected and without any qualifications whatsoever. Because what we see again and again is that the evidence, when well-processed professionally, doesn't lie. 
and it doesn't cough up a narrative that fits with the biases and prejudices of a, of a community. It often tells you a different story because most of what we want to believe about who is the, who is the real villain is a function of our individual personalities. It's not evidentiary. It's not scientific. You know, and we are limited in our understanding, I think, of criminals and the criminal mindset by this bias, you know. And I also walk away from this, like I will never go before a jury of my peers. If I'm falsely accused of something hideous, I will I will put my fate in the hands of the judge before I will go before a jury. Because I just <laughs> we have done so well, many of these stories. If we get right down to it, the thing that I would really, really, really more than anything else in the whole wide world, the thing that I would really love is that we would start devoting the kind of money and resources and um, effort and energy to education mm -hmm. that we do to everything else, to defense particularly, to, right. um, to military expansion. I just, I wish that either, either I would like everybody to be better educated or I would like stupid to be a crime. <laughs> I have just, <laughs> I am just old enough that I have just had all the stupid I can take. <laughs> I just can't take any more stupid. Everything about this case is about stupid. Right. Everything is about stupid people in a stupid community doing stupid things entirely based on their religious belief that idiot, Dale Griffiths or You're whatever right. the fuck yeah. his name was, is an idiot. That man is just stupid mm -hmm. and i would like for him to be condemned to education one of the things i would love to do is i think that when we send people to trial and convict them of crimes i think they should be sentenced to a degree of education mm -hmm. like oh you did this well you have to get a um, nuclear physicist degree before mm -hmm. you can get out of prison. You have to do everything you have to do to get that degree. Mm -hmm. And you can't leave prison until you've graduated summa cum laude or whatever with honors from that particular um, discipline. You're going to wind up with a better educated group of people. Or a supervillain. Su <laughs> which, fine. At least they would not be stupid. <laughs> Okay, so you don't give them nuclear physics. You give them, you give them medicine, or you give them um, jurisprudence, or you give them something about the social good. Yeah, like you give them you know, biotechnical research, right, right. or or I don't care right. marine biology. It could yeah. be anything, but you wind up with well-educated people coming out of prison because well-educated people have options mm -hmm. that in, that include them not being right. stupid bad choices which is what makes a criminal mm -hmm. like no options and no good choices and a bad decision making ability because you're not very bright is how you get to be a criminal right if you are well educated and have options well then it doesn't matter and we spend a fortune keeping people in prison why not spend it on educating them mm -hmm. instead of just prison yeah like, I just think I would really like us to do everything we can to make the population brighter. Because, yes. as I said, I've just had all the stupid I can stand. That's the name for this podcast That's now. That's going to be I've just brighter. had all the, all the stupid, stupid I, can I can stand. Well, we're saying goodbye to the region we both hailed from in this installment of uh, True Crime Movie Time Summer right. Film Festival. We're moving back towards our current coast, our favorite coast. Uh, Pacific Northwest West. nightmares are next. So that's we're talking about stuff in potentially in Washington State, 
say, no, we already did all of California. Alaska? Alaska could be included. Um, Montana, Wyoming. Although we brushed up against Wyoming when we did Midwest, ma'am. Just a little bit of Wyoming. Just a uh, Wyoming and Idaho. Idaho. There's a lot of stories out of Idaho. A lot um, of stories. I, I, a friend of mine who shall remain nameless, she is an Idaho defender. She, I was at a gathering with her recently, and she said she wants Idaho to have a more enlightened reputation. She says some of the most white supremacist elements have been, quote-unquote, chased out of Idaho, and she th- thinks it's got an undeserved bad rap to well, this day. Well, good. So, okay, Idaho. Um, it's a gorgeous state. I would love to visit Idaho. Yeah. Stunning. Um, but that's the general region. So we're gonna we're gonna look. Hopefully, it will not be as hard as the South was to find. We talked about this last I hope week. Not a pairing has to be a documentary, a good documentary, and a movie. Right, a good movie. Say it, a good movie. Well, the movie is more of a crapshoot than the documentary. I would like a documentary that's actually fact based, not somebody yelling at me on YouTube or a film of somebody else's podcast. I can make shit up. I would like an actual. I don't. We, well we, produced, I would. Well I would recommend a, a he who cast the first stone approach here with yelling at people into microphones because we do plenty of yelling at our microphones. That's that's just. Fine. I don't like just reading somebody's Wikipedia <laughs> entry on YouTube. There's a lot of that. Right. You know that's not my favorite thing. Right. But we want a real documentary and a movie, and so we're gonna we're gonna find that about the Pacific Northwest. The Pacific Northwest is kind of serial killer central, so I think we're gonna turn. We may not do that, but we may turn up a lot. Yeah, I think there's. Yeah. I think there's some real potential in there yeah so yeah i'm hoping that we're gonna have a better time of it then but yeah that'll be that will be fun you know i almost grew up in pocatello idaho what yeah there was a moment when my father was finishing his doctorate Mm -hmm. um and was being considered for a position at a university in pocatello idaho i'm young enough and right at the time and now old enough that i've forgotten if i ever knew what the university is called there right. but some sort of uh, professorship at that particular university and he had um a phone interview with the people from pocatello that was the big sort of deciding wow. factor and he got on the phone with the people and my sister (laughs) who was I don't know maybe eight or nine at the time got on the extension (laughs) and she wouldn't get off (laughs) and he was like this is an important call Sarah I have who is it (laughs) who are you talking to what about what are y'all talking about (laughs) my father tried to keep his school together but I think it was a bad look for a yeah. professor that he couldn't control his own eight-year-old, let alone a classroom full of whoever <laughs> at Pocatello University. And uh, we never heard from them again. Never heard from them again. So I was uh, saved or prevented from growing up in Pocatello, Pocatello Idaho, Idaho by my sister's um, indefatigable nature. <laughs> Which I have to say hasn't probably changed all that much all these years later. Oh, I um, see. She's on the phone right now. Yeah, there she is. But, but you can't do that anymore. You can't just pick up and join a line in the house. Everybody's got separate lines. Their phones are more advanced is what I'm saying. Oh, you absolutely can. Oh, you can? Oh, oh yeah. Terrible. I talk to them on multiple extensions all the time oh, really? when I call home. Yeah. I guess I just don't call yeah. people on the phone yeah. anymore. That's probably it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's my that's my Pocatello, Idaho story. Never yeah. made it. Never seen it. Um I was quite intrigued with it at the time, but then yeah. it was it faded into um, obscurity thanks to my little sister. Absolutely. Okay, so Pacific Northwest nightmares are next. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. 
This is TDPS.